Before I begin, I just want to thank God that I'm able to come here and also um, just the blessing of having my family with me. Um, I've always, I've learned the hard way to always put my, put God first and then my family second and then my ministry is third and then everything else. And so um, by the grace of God, uh, there hasn't been one speaking engagement yet since um, I haven't brought my family with me. And so I really believe that um, they're the most important ministry. So everything I pour into my daughter, my daughter's homeschooled. And I just feel that there's something, like my feel of my ministry is only as powerful as my, my family is. So I've, I just see that family's falling apart as I deal with relationships. And that's been a big burden in my heart to see the, the strength of the family once again. Um, there's a, a series I did on, on family and relationships. And one is on, it has 12 sermons in this. And this actually helps support to um, support my wife and my daughter to come with us on the speaking engagement. So it's actually a, a blessing if you, you help us out in this way. But we have it at the booth today and I'll um, doing lunchtime for our, for our display. Tonight, my presentation, tonight will we'll be on connection. And the sermon title tonight is called Eve's Broken Bones, Emotionally Disconnected. Eve's Broken Bones, Emotionally Disconnected. And this morning my topic is entitled, My God, My God, Where Were You? I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 to 40 is our opening text this morning. Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40. And before we begin, let us seek the Lord in prayer. Father, we are here before you because we know we need you. I know, Lord, I need you. I pray that you help me to speak with freedom and may your words that come through be your words. We thank you, Lord, for already answering this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says that God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. You know, in the, in the Conflict of the Ages series, that start off the five-book series by written by Ellen White, do you know what the first three words are there in Patriarchs and Prophets? Does anyone know? God is what? Love. And then at the end of the Conflict of the Ages series on um, Volume 5 in The Great Controversy, in the last three words of that book of The Great Controversy, does anyone know what the last three words are? God is what? Love. So packaged right there in the whole story of redemption from the beginning and the end is 1 John 4 verse 8, God is love. You think that was there by accident or you think that God actually put there on purpose? I believe God had put there for a reason for us to understand that he is love. See, the Bible says that God is love. And what he's really saying is that love is the only motive in which God does anything in this world. It's the one thing that motivates him. Now, on your handout I have there, there's actually... A saying here. Think about this as your father. Your father drugs people to unconsciousness. Then when they are helpless, 
he has them stretch out on a table in which he then cuts their bodies with knives. Now, what if I was to tell you that this was your father? What if I was to tell you that your father was a mass murderer who killed your mom? How would you feel about this statement? How do you feel about your father? You'd be hurt, disappointed, angry. Because what if I told you the very same statement that your father was a surgeon who actually saved your mother's life? How do you feel about this statement now about your father? Love. So what I'm trying to say is, is not only the actions revealed here in, the, in this little statement, it's actually what is the motive behind the actions. Does that make sense? And what happens in the Bible is that people misjudge and misread the Bible, especially the Old Testament, all the destruction of what God allowed and did, and they misread the motive. See, in the Hebrew culture, they wrote the stories but what they did was, they didn't have the motive of love. But in American culture, we always want to understand the whole story. So in Hollywood, they always produce the motives. But not in Hebrew culture. They expected you to already understand that the motive was already there, that God is love. And so we misunderstand God's character. I'm sharing this because I've seen that a lot of people, they misread God's character. They misjudge him. Things happen to them in their life. And then they question God. And I've seen the one, number one reason why people become atheists or a lot of Adventists leave the church and young people are leaving the church because they're questioning God. Something happened, happened to them in their life. Something tragic happened to them. The same little statement there about the father, right? They misread that statement and they gave a wrong motive to the father in heaven. And thus they left the church. Now... A counselor shared a story about a pastor. And this pastor shared his experience of how he saw himself when he was younger, heartbroken. And he tells the story when he was 13 years old, he remembered going outside and he saw as his father and his mother fighting and they got a divorce. And he remembered watching as the father drove away for the last time seeing his father for the last time with tears streaking down his cheeks. He said, all these years I've been angry at God for that. I was mad at God for not keeping my parents together. And I wasn't even aware of it. Now I see how it's been affecting my ability to trust and receive God's love. You see, if we don't understand how God works and allowing things to happen we'll always end up disappointed with God. And that's what this morning God wants us to see his love in everything. Turn to me to Matthew 22, verse 36. Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40, for those who just got in. The Bible says here, the Lord was asking Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Master, this is a great commandment in the law. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. See, we're talking about unity. And if we're going to have unity, the only way to have unity is that we obey all of God's ten commandments. What do you say this morning? Amen? 
That's the only way. And you think about it, the last six commandments deal with our relationship with each other. The first four deal with our relationship with God, right? So if we obey the first four commandments, we will have unity or oneness with God, right? And then if we obey the last six, we will have unity with one another. We won't be stealing, we won't be hurting, we won't be murdering. So we will have that unity that we're talking about here. So in order to have true unity, we must have the Ten Commandments. If that's clear, let me hear you say amen. Amen? There must be obedience to God's commandments. We must obey, you must obey this morning to God's Ten Commandments. But I want you also to notice that these Ten Commandments, they reveal that if we love God, we will keep His commandments. And there's another thing about this also, is that these Ten Commandments really reveal to us how to love one another. The Ten Commandments is this really a written version of God's character of love. So when I look at the Ten Commandments, in my mind, it really reveals God's love to me. I know a lot of times we think, okay, Ten Commandments, we get bashed over the head. But really, inspiration says, otherwise says, it's a transcript. It's a written version of God's character, His glory, His character of love. So when I look at the law of God, to me, it reveals that God is love. And so this reveals how does love look like? Well, love to your brother and sister, you're not going to murder them. That's not loving, right? Love to your brother and sister, you're not going to lie to them, right? That's not loving. Love to your parents will reveal that you're not going to dishonor and disrespect them, right? Love to your wife or your husband is such that you're not going to commit adultery. That is not loving, right? So in my eyes, when I look at the Ten Commandments, it is beautiful, it is just, it is perfect. It converts the soul because it reveals God's character love. If that's clear, let me hear you say amen. Amen? And so with the first four, if you truly love God, you're not going to have another idol, another, the devil is your girlfriend, right? When you love God, you're going to have a special time, a date time with God on the Holy Sabbath day where it's just you and Him so you can get to have an intimate relationship with Him. So all of the Ten Commandments reveal is a transcript, as the Spirit of Prophecy says, of God's character of love. We serve a wonderful God. You believe that? Let me say amen. Amen? Now Satan has been accusing God that his law is faulty and unfair. But it's simply not true. For the breaking of God's laws has forced us to build more prisons, has forced us to build more insane asylums on this world. And thus, not only have we put locks on our stores and our houses, but we also put locks on our hearts as well. So God gave us the Ten Commandments as a gift to us that this is the way to love. In other words, the Ten Commandments reveals to us what love looks like. And I want to know how to love one another. How about you? Amen? You see, God hates the sin because it is the enemy of the sinner whom he loves. You see, if I have a friend who has cancer, my love for my friend is revealed by my hatred for that cancer. And in the same way, God's hatred for sin is simply his love for the sinner in whom the sin is seeking to destroy. 
That's why God loves the sinner, but he hates the what? And why does he hate the sin? Because it's killing you whom he loves so much. What a wonderful God. Amen? So when you look at the Ten Commandments, don't be afraid, okay, obedience, but love the law of God, right? Can we love the law of God this morning? Can you hear amen? Amen? Love the law of God. The law is beautiful. Obedience to the law of God is beautiful. And God wants that in his church. So when God's calling for a reform in our Seventh-day Adventist church today, he's calling for us to reform our hearts. Why? Because he wants us to reveal love to him and be obedient to his commands. Why? He wants to experience the, the appreciation from his people he created and whom he loves in return back to him by keeping his Seventh-day Sabbath holy. What do you say? Amen? And when God asks us to obey the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and he wants us to be obedient to all the commandments and how we treat one another, and obedient to the laws that is given to us, and to take the sin out of our lives, God is calling for a reformation, a revival and a reformation in our hearts and a reformation in our lives that we can live the lives that God has called us to live as his example people in these last days. What do you say, amen? He's calling for obedience. Not because he hates us, because he loves us. Obedience is not a bad word. Obedience is a beautiful word. Especially when we see what's happening in God's beloved church today. God's remnant church today. God is, is looking for people who will reveal in action what he stated and written down in his word. And God is calling for this generation to wake up and to live the life that God has called you and me to live in these days. Turn me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Let's look at discipline. What does God do to those whom he loves? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. The Bible says, For whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens or what? Disciplines. And scourges every son whom he receives. So, who does God discipline? Those he hates? Those he what? Loves. You see, we have a warped picture of love today. The American culture has changed. And in American culture is that if you were to discipline a child, that's not loving. You have no love in you for doing that. You should not do that because you're not showing love at all. But according to this, according to this text, God says, I reveal my love to you by my discipline to you. I know this may sound foreign to some of us here. So it, it clashes with the American culture completely. And what we do is we take the American culture that we live in today, and we take that, we package it up, that if you discipline, there is no love. And then we put it in our picture, in our relationship with God, our Father, our parent in heaven, and we put it in, in there, and this false picture of love that we have, we put it up there, and then we get to thinking that, okay, if I get disciplined by God, and something bad happens to me, if I go through suffering, 
and hurt and pain, then God doesn't love me. And where do we get that? From the American culture. You cannot discipline. Because if you discipline, you don't love your child. So somehow when I get disciplined and I go to trials and I go through hardships and, well, you know, God doesn't care about me. He doesn't love me. You know, we're told that whenever we discipline, we should only discipline with a heart full of unconditional love. What do you say? Amen. And we're also told in inspiration that we should never discipline in anger. You know that, right? That's going to mess up a child. And that's the way, if you ever discipline in anger, you should always ask forgiveness from your child and humble yourself. You know, when I get angry with my daughter and I discipline in anger, I always go to her and I say, Anya, will you please forgive me? You know, she always forgives me. <laughs> Aren't children beautiful? Amen. They don't hold grudges. We should always ask for forgiveness from our children if we sinned against them in that way. You know, I was reading Child Guidance recently. And you know, I said the best way to work with children is to give them a time out. And she said, not only for the children's sake, guess what? For the parents' sake, so that you will never discipline them in anger. Give time to calm down. So you give them time out to go out and then... We're going to talk about this tonight a little bit. But it helps with their conscience to think about and actually grows a young person's conscience that we're not seeing here today. A quick discipline is a fast food discipline. You want it quick and short, end of story and move on with what needs to happen. But the loving way is a timeout discipline. You actually have to wait. She said one to two hours. Can you imagine that? And the wife said one to two hours so the child can think and you can actually calm down and then you can finally work together. Isn't that beautiful? You no, know, the spirit of prophecy has everything for us. What do you say? Amen. And so when God works with us, the same thing happens. You look at it throughout the Bible. When Moses had sinned, broken God's law, God put him 40 years in time out to get his life in order to be ready. What do you say? Huh? Amen. When the children of Israel had sinned and come out of Egypt and they're broken God's commandments and his laws, God put them 40 years in the wilderness. When Saul, who was a persecutor, who, who murdered Christians and was at the foot of Stephen, who was murdered and stoned, God put him in time out for a few years and then he used him in a powerful way. And God is a heavenly parent. He's a father. He does the same methods of discipline as revealed in the word as we are to discipline our children. And that's how God deals with us. So a false picture of love that God doesn't love me when he disciplines me is messing up our generation in this culture. Whom only does God discipline? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 and 8. You know what the Bible says? If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what sin is he whom the Father does not discipline? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers... Then are you bastards and not sons. In other words, God disciplines you because he believes you're his son. If you weren't his son, he wouldn't discipline you. But because he sees you as his children and he loves you, he's going to discipline you. He's going to put you in hardships. He's going to put you to trials. He's going to put you to struggles. And they will come your way. 
things will not always go on perfectly in your life. Just because God disciplines you doesn't mean that things are going wrong in your life. You know, I was thinking about the call putter question last night. And let me share something about call putting. I would not be standing here today unless I call portered. And Magabook Book is a powerful blessing. That's, but you know what really did it for me? It was big books. I don't know if you guys know what big books is. Let me tell you about my story. Okay, Magabook, Book, I did okay. But then I went to Weimar College, graduated from Weimar College. So when I was there, um, they were really pressuring me. I was one of the leaders on the campus, spiritual leaders. Um, so they were really looking up to me. I was a senior class president. I mean, they were really like, okay, you got to, they always just be like, I'll be walking by and my friends would be joking like, the chosen one, you got like big booking, you got a big book, you know, not a, the pressure they put on you and manipulate you and all that. So I decided, okay, I'm going to big book. And they're like, they had big hopes for me. Like, I'm going to do really good and really great. You know, God's going to bless me because in the other areas, they felt God was blessing me in these, all these other areas. So I started big booking. And I did good in the beginning. And I think the first day I had sales, like two sales. I mean, it was pretty good. And so I, wow, two sales. I was like, wow, you're going to do really good this program. And then I hit a dry spell. One week, no sale. <laughs> two weeks, not one sale. And these are big sets, right? Maybe I got a MAGA book here or there. Three weeks, no sale. You know what I used to come back every night as I get on my knees? You know what I used to plead to God? Why, God? What am I doing? What did I do wrong? We're going through the whole program, and then my friend, who was selling more sets than me, he said he was so discouraged, he left the program. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, my friend doing better than me, and he left the program? What about me? Why am I still here? I shouldn't even be here. Ever happened to you? And I was going, God, why? But you know what I realized? I didn't realize this until later. I became a minister. And you know, ministering today's world, this is a crazy world. You guys know that, right? Today, pastoring, even when I first started 14 years ago, compared to what it is today, is a total different thing than it was before. We're seeing such evils coming not only into the world, but coming to our church. We never even thought they were coming to our church. And we're seeing all these things happening. But you know what it is? My big book experience of going to hardships and struggles and trials and discipline of God without seeming somehow forsaken of God and pressing through those difficulties. God saw something in his son that he wanted to develop in me. That prepared me for the ministry. And that's what God allows discipline to come into your life. If you think that, okay, everything's always going to be perfect if you're worshiping God. All those who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Where do we get that religion of Santa Claus religion? You're praying the Santa Claus God is always going to give you that. what you want. That vending machine God, you put it in that prayer and it's always going to come out. Where do we get that picture? It's from America. We, we hate suffering in America. We have everything too, too good for us. Everything's too comfortable for us. And thus, if you discipline your child, you don't love your child. 
And so we place it upon God and we see, God, why am I going through this? What's happening in my life? How come I'm going through all this struggle? Now, bear in mind, there are sins that we do that we create our own suffering, right? We make our own bed and we, what? Sleep in them, right? You made your own bed many times. But things happen where we are the other end of people's sin and abuse toward us. You see, we must experience that, the thought that Father loves me and Father knows best. What do you say? Amen? You see, a father loves his child. And in raising his child, he takes more time to think things through more than his child. Say if you had a swimming pool. Say if your, your son was by a swimming pool and you're watching your son and He's playing by the swimming pool, and you saw him go out by the swimming pool, and you tell your son, hey, son, don't, don't go by the swimming pool. What if the next day you see him, and he's went out by the swimming pool, and he's only four years old, and he's going by the swimming pool. What do you need to do? He's only four years old, those who, who are parents. What do you say to him? You're thinking far ahead. You think, okay, if he's by the pool, he could get hurt. In fact, he could actually fall in and possibly what? Die. Now the child's not thinking this. The child is thinking about only having fun and playing by the swimming pool, right? Now, so what you do is you tell Johnny, Johnny, if you play by the edge of that swimming pool again, I'm going to have to discipline you. Why do you tell Johnny that? Because you don't love Johnny? Because you hate Johnny? Because you love Johnny. So, in love, you say, thou shalt not. What if the next day, he comes to the pool, and he fell on his back and became paralyzed because he fell on his back. And then Johnny, in his mind, said, I'm never going to go to the pool again. Did Johnny learn his lesson? Yes. He's paralyzed for life now. Did Johnny learn his lesson? Yes, he did. Was it a hard lesson? Yes. But did he have to learn it that way? What a hard lesson to learn, right? Wouldn't it be more loving to actually stop Johnny by some type of discipline to save Johnny from the extreme pain of being paralyzed for the rest of his life? Which would he have a simple discipline on this side? which is considered not loving in this culture today, or having Johnny actually being paralyzed for the rest of his life. That's the culture we live in America, the no-love culture of discipline. And yet that's how God deals with you and me. As a child, he loves you. If you're an illegitimate child, he, then he won't discipline. But because you're his child, he will discipline you. You will go through suffering. You will go through hardship. You will go to pain. You will go to hurt. Life is not going to be easy. Things are going to come your way. Right after this, you're feeling all high and praise God and amen, right? The moment you leave here, Satan's not going to let you go on and continue your life of being on the spiritual mountaintop. You're going to have to come down to the valley. And when you come down to that valley below, Satan's going to throw everything he can at you. And God's going to allow it. Why? Because as many as I love, I discipline. Because he loves you. And he, thus he gives us a reason for refraining ourselves that we can understand. 
while on the cross. Let's look at the cross. What did Satan tempt Jesus with? Matthew chapter 27. Turn to, with me to Matthew chapter 27, verse 43. Matthew 27, verse 43. While on the cross, what did Satan tempt Jesus with? The Bible says... They're testing Jesus and tempting him on the cross. And the Bible says to Jesus, they were saying, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. See, the temptation that Satan tempted Jesus with on the cross was that if Jesus really trusted in God, God would what? Deliver him. But the problem here is that God did not deliver his son. In fact, it seemed as if God didn't even care on the cross when Jesus was up on the cross. When he was hurting, when he was suffering, when he was going through pain. Jesus was up on the cross and he felt his father wasn't even there. On the cross, God was in the hands of angry sinners as Christ became the innocent victim of their rage. And beloved, this is the same temptation that Satan uses on Christians today. For many Christians have asked, why is it that when I trusted in God, God didn't come through? For I trusted in God and my husband still left me. I trusted in God and my parents still got a divorce. I trusted in God and my mom still got cancer. I trusted in God and I still lost my job. Why, God, why did all these things happen to me? Why is it going through all of this? You see, Jesus is not the only one who had to suffer as the innocent for the guilty. But because we live in a sinful world, all of us here are going to be suffering at the hands, maybe being, even being the innocent, suffering from the guilty who actually oppressed you and sinned against you. Even when you haven't done anything wrong to someone else, they're going to come around, and this is the world of sin. Sooner or later in your life, they're going to come to you, and they're going to hurt you, and they're going to sin against you, and they're going to give pain to you because we live in a sinful world. And even though his son was crying out to his father, Why? The Father still allowed it to happen. Turn me to Matthew 27, verse 46. Look at verse 46. Notice the Bible says, What did Jesus cry out on the cross? Notice that the Bible says. The Bible says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, My God, my God, Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, let me ask you a question. How many believe that Jesus was only acting on the cross? How many of you believe that Jesus was just pretending on the cross? Like he didn't really feel this way. See, Jesus didn't believe in drama, he wasn't acting, he wasn't pretending. He was being real on the cross. He was questioning his father, why? On the cross of Calvary, he was asking that question, why? The groaning disappointment of his heart was, why God, to his own father? In fact, the whole New Testament, he always addressed his father in heaven as father in an intimate way. 
But right here is the only text in the New Testament where he actually addresses Father as a far distant relationship as my God. And here on the cross, he was like, my God, my God, why? But this tragedy on the cross didn't mean that his father didn't love him. No, instead, God allowed what happened to Jesus because he loved his son. How? Because he knew the heart of his son. He knew the deep longings of Jesus' heart, what Jesus really wanted, and what was best for Jesus on the cross. And what was best for Jesus? What did Jesus want on the cross? Jesus wanted you this morning, who's sitting here this morning. He wanted you to be there in heaven with him forever and to be happy. What a God, amen? And he saw you, and he knew that if his son was to give up and not go through the suffering and not go through the pain and not go through the hurt of dying on the cross, he knew that you and I would not be saved. And he thought of the heart of his son that when his son went to heaven and he, throughout the seasons, ages of eternity, and he looked down through all of that, his son would not have been happy. It would have hurt his heart for all eternity that he did not give his life on the cross. That his father withheld the discipline and, and actually the, the wrath of God against him and, and he was killed on the cross. And so he was doing it because he knew that's what his son's desire was. And thus he gave the discipline. He allowed the hurt and the pain and the wrath of God against sin that was placed upon his son to come down upon his own son. What a God. What do you say? Amen. And in the same way, when you and I go through pain and suffering and ask God why, it's because he loves you. The Father loves you. And Father knows best. What do you say, church? Amen? My family went through a tragedy two months ago. And so I went to go and visit my family, which lives about an hour away. And I sought to do visitations to my different family members because of this tragedy. And I visited my younger sister. And my younger sister, we were very, very close. We are like this. And she had rented out a beach home for the weekend. She invited all her, some nephew nieces and actually um, the nieces' children. They were a little young. And so she invited them to come to this home. And she invited my oldest older sister's grandson to come, Layson, who was four years old. And they were swimming and having fun in the swimming pool. It was a pretty large swimming pool. And they had all their floaties everywhere. It was, it was having all kind of fun in there. And I was visiting my sister. And she was telling me what happened where she took Layson out. She put him in a corner for timeout. And then... She went to check out her son on the cliff. It's a beach home. So she went to check out the son fishing on the cliff. So she went out there, check on him. And then when she came back, she came back inside. And she uh, looked around and where Lacey was sitting over there, he was no longer there. She goes, where's Lacey? Where's Lacey? And so she was looking for him. And look, glancing in the pool, didn't see him in the pool, and looking around, where's Lacey? 
As she was telling me the story, I felt like I was there with her. Almost like because we were so close, I felt like I was there with my sister. She said she went down to the cliff and looking around the cliff to see maybe her son, Layson, had fallen over, didn't find him. So she went back inside and she went looking around and then she went into the beach home and looking around and calling out, Layson, Layson. And then she ran upstairs and looking around and then she went to the big picture window. And she went to the picture window and then she said she looked out and there she saw face down in a pool, Layson. I'll never forget that. She said she was screaming at the top of her voice to her niece. Go to the pool. But she, was, she couldn't be heard because she was inside. She said it was almost like slow motion. She was running downstairs like a scene forever. And she ran outside and she went inside and she jumped in the pool and took him out and put him on the side. My sister's an RN and her friend was there was also an RN. And they began to work CPR on him and, and try to save his life and working on him. It took the ambulance 17 minutes to get there. So for 17 minutes, they're working on him and working on him and trying to bring him back to life. The ambulance took him to the hospital. The doctors worked on him for another two hours. Finally, they said, they turned to the father who was there. It was my nephew. Say, so look at his eyes. It's dilated. His brain damaged. He's not going to make it. So they let him go. And Lason died. My sister said she was in the emergency room and she came out and she came into the hallway and the father came out. He's a big man and he looks so weak. He just kind of dropped like that. And he said, Auntie. And they hugged and they cried. And as we were talking and sharing, my sister said to me, Why? I was pleading with God the whole time I was doing CPR. I was, I was pleading to God, Why? Please, God, save his life. Save his life. Please, God, please save his life. Why is she trying to save his life? And she goes, why? Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow this suffering to happen? He's so innocent. Four years old, little boy, he had his whole life ahead of him. Why did he suffer? And she cried. She leaned on me and she, she was crying in my arms. She was crying, Why? I said to her, are you still praying? I said, I haven't prayed since the incident. It was a few days later. But I have asked God why over and over. I said, prayer is talking to God as a what? Friend. And it's okay to ask God why because Jesus asked his father why on the cross. And as you talk to Jesus and ask him why, you're still talking. That's still prayer. And she said, I guess I've still been praying. I've been asking God why. 
And I told her, you had a turning point. I always see this happen. Every time there's a disappointment in life, every time there's a, something bad that's going on in life, you go down either two roads, I tell them. So I told Mrs. you're going to be on two roads. The first road is the road of bitterness. You can become bitter at others. You can become bitter at life. You can become bitter at God. And the other road you can choose to go down is called the road of healing. And when I tell them that, they normally say, I don't want to become bitter. Then let's go down the road of healing toward a great physician. What did Jesus cry out right before he died? Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. You know what the Bible says? Luke chapter 23, verse 46. The Bible says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Right before Jesus died, in other words, here it says in the text, he did not say, my God, my God. He said, Father, once again. In other words, even though Jesus' faith on the cross faltered, it did not fail. What did he say? Amen? In the end, he was victorious on the cross of Calvary for you and me. He was close. Why is the question. I was able to visit my niece who lost her son. And I told her the same thing about bitterness. And I said, God loves you. Whatever happens, remember this. God loves you. You had a turning point in your, your life. A few days ago, right before I came here, I got an email from her. I'm going to read you this email, what she wrote to me. See, from the day my son died until recently... I've been struggling with my feelings toward his passing. They say that you grieve as much as you love the person you lost. And for some reason, my son was always a very special person to me. He touched my heart and became my world. My world was shattered when he was taken from me and my grief felt unbearable. I've contemplated suicide many times since his passing. I prayed and prayed for forgiveness, peace, comfort, and guidance. Since that incident, I have begun reading the Bible and praying more for comfort. What do you say, amen? Most of all, faith. I started to read the books last night, and all of this morning, I know that I was led there for a reason. I'm at peace now. What do you say, church, amen? I know that he did not suffer in his death and that God took him safely from this world without any discomfort. I know that my son had a purpose and that he completed what he was sent here to do, one of which I believe was to bring our family closer to God. What do you say, amen? Today I cried, not for my son, but because of love I feel is surrounding me. God is with me and I can feel his presence he has helped me through this difficult time, and I am so inspired. I cry because his love is so pure, so unconditional, and I am so unworthy. I finally have forgiven the people I tried not to be angry with. If it were not God's will, he would have intervened and changed the outcome of my son's faith. One thing that stands out to me was that my son recently told me. He knew what death meant to me. By the way, these people didn't go to church. And would question if something died. Right before he passed, one of our baby chicks died. And I remember telling him, I'm sorry, honey, the baby chick died. He looked me straight in the face and said, without any doubt or question in his mind, Mom, the baby chick is not dead. It's sleeping. 
he was smarter than me at that time. And I think he knew something more than I did. I now know that his words are true. Nothing dies, they sleep. He has taught me that and so much more. Through him, my faith in God has been restored. His death has given me new life. Beloved, when we know that our Father loves me, and Father knows best, that we can heal from our tragedies. What do you say? Amen? Turn to me to Luke chapter 24, verse 21. Luke chapter 24, verse 21. What was the false expectation of the people concerning Jesus? Luke chapter 24, verse 21. The Bible says, But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. In other words, the reason why they were disappointed because they thought Jesus was going to redeem Israel. See, on Sunday, the crowds were cheering and they were happy that Jesus was coming in the great triumphant entry into Jerusalem. They're excited about the Messiah. And what made him change so quickly that on Friday that they had turned in angry rage and angry fists at their Messiah and actually murder him? What was it? And they want to crucify him. What had caused him to turn suddenly? These two disheartened disciples, this was the same disappointment that all of Israel had. That he was to save Israel from the oppression of Rome. You see, false expectations always leads to disappointment and anger. If we expect somebody to do something we want them to do, but they don't do it, right? Yesterday, the great controversy, people get upset and they get angry, even to the point of murder. So they had a false expectation. That's why in your handout, if you look at it, false expectation leads to disappointment and anger. And because Jesus wouldn't give in to the false expectation to save Israel out of the hands of Rome, and the Roman Empire, they became disappointed and angry with him, with God. And it was this anger that eventually led to their murder. You see, God does not always provide and protect the way we may expect for him to protect and to provide for us. You believe that? Let me say amen. Amen? He's not always going to do that. And thus, when he doesn't fulfill our expectations, we feel let down, sometimes even betrayed. And some of us may become even angry at God for allowing these things to happen. Without even realizing it. Pastor shared his story. He said his wife left him. And he said, I started to pray to God and plead and fast and pray. And every night he said, pray. And then finally, I knew that my wife would come back. Then the pastor shared but she didn't come back. And the pastor became angry and bitter at God. And I was hurt that, that this had happened. And now when I've, I have no problem now praying for others. I try to encourage them and trust God. But when it comes to myself and my own needs, it's so hard to pray for myself. I'm afraid I'll get hurt again. I know I should pray, so I force myself. Then I'm flooded with doubts. Does God really listen to my prayers? Does God really care about my needs? This is a pastor. He can pray with you. He can encourage you. He cannot pray to God because he's hurting from his past. You ever been there and know someone like that? He forces himself to pray. See, we shouldn't measure God's love for us based upon what's happening to us, but we should measure God's love for us, what he did on the cross. What do you say? Amen? 
Jesus confronted them. And what led to them was the disappointment and anger. What did Jesus say on the cross to his enemies? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. In other words, even though the people vented their rage and anger toward God for disappointing them, guess what? He still loved them and forgave them. What a wonderful God. Amen? You see, the cross proves that God can absorb your anger and your rage. In other words, you can bring your disappointments and anger at the foot of the cross. No, because we've all sinned. It was all sin that killed Christ on the cross. Because all of us have sinned, we killed Christ on the cross. In other words, not only were all those people there at the cross who murdered Christ, but because we, our sins murdered Christ, you and I were there in person murdering Christ on the cross. How? In the same way that they did. They were in disappointment at God. In other words, when we, in any time in our whole life, if we've ever been disappointed that something didn't work out the way we wanted them to work out, that disappointment is the same disappointment that turns into anger that is the anger that killed Christ on the cross. So you and I were there, angry at God for what had happened. Martin Luther said, we carry his nails in our pockets. Angry at God for failing to protect and deliver us. And we stood there in rage with murder. And God, you know what? God still loved us and forgave us. What a God. Amen? There's two ways to tell you don't love God. One is that you don't keep his commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't keep God's commandments, that reveals that we don't love God. There's something hidden that maybe there's some kind of bitterness or hatred or disappointment to God that needs to be healed. And the second thing is found in your handout. It's found also in 1 John 4 verse 20. If a man says he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Inspiration says, For the spirit we manifest toward our brethren declares what is our spirit toward God. In other words, if we can get along with one another in unity and oneness, the spirit we manifest toward each other. In other words, if I have a spirit of hatred or anger against one another, does anyone have bitterness I hate or I don't forgive anyone else? If I hate anyone, that reveals that you and I hate God. And there needs to be healing. There needs to be forgiveness. Healing from disappointment and anger would have happened in your life. When I became a pastor, I was mistreated and abused. I never saw such evil and wickedness my whole life I felt I saw more evil and wickedness in the church than I saw in the world trying to be controlled by the conference and the members you know we talked about control yesterday somebody said a lady who lost her boyfriend said who abused her used to control her said the worst part of it all was not losing him it was losing me you lose your identity. So I became bitter and hurt. And I cried out to God, God, why this is so unfair? Why didn't you stop this from happening? Especially in God's remnant church. Why do you allow all this to happen? Is this evil and wickedness to happen within his church? His church should be pure, a living example. Remnant church. And then I realized that God was doing something in me through his Discipline. 
He's been preparing me that I'll be there for all eternity. And Jesus learned obedience, it says in Hebrews, through the things that he what? Suffered. Beloved, you're going to suffer in this world. It's going to happen. So at this time, I'm going to ask Tina to come and she's going to sing that we have a father in heaven. He calls me his own. He'll never leave us no matter where we go. And I want you to, in your mind, make a commitment to God and say, God, I'm not going to believe the false definition of love in the American culture. I'm going to believe your definition of, of love in the Bible, that whenever I go to discipline, I know you still love me. I'm going to focus on the cross every time it goes bad. Make that commitment as Tina sings.
Father, we thank you that you give us the hope that we have a Father who knows our name. Help us to know that Father loves me. Father knows best. And as we go down into the real world from this conference, may we never forget that we are your child and that you love us. We thank you, Lord, for already answering our prayers and I pray that you may bless the commitments made in the minds of those who love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.